0: And welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute.
1: And I am Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI.
0: And today we are excited to welcome two guests, a husband and wife duo. I think that might be our first, Ian. Justin and Alexis Black. They are the authors of Redefining Normal, How Two Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Discovered Healing, Happiness, and Love. They're also the co-founders of an organization called Redefining Normal, which we're going to talk to them about today. So welcome.
2: Welcome. Thank you so much for having us on here. It's an extreme blessing to be able to talk to you today and just to be able to talk about our companies and everything we have going on. So tell us
0: a little bit about your backstory. I mean, people can read the book and I encourage them to do so because it's an inspiring story. But tell us a little bit about what it was like for the two of you growing up and how you met and decided on this path for your life now.
2: Yeah, of course. So first, I guess I'll start with basically how we met. I mean, so we're both foster care alumni and we met at the Cedar Scholars Program during set week. Cedar Scholars Program is a program at Western Michigan University for foster youth and higher education that helps with scholarships and also coaching With just helping foster youth navigate through the the struggles of college. And with us, we met during the summer set week, and you can enter the program basically at any stage in your college career. So she entered as a junior and I entered as a freshman. And you know, I I met this junior during the summer set week and completely like just out of my league and everything, but I was still interested and it was so much to learn from her. And during that week of knowing her, there were many activities that challenged us to be who we are. And there was one activity in particular that said that, you know, describe something and it was anonymous activity where we had to write it on a note card, describe what people wouldn't believe that you've been through by looking at you. Mm. And that activity really continued the conversation of healing and talking about our past traumas. And I've admired her just ever since i met her, but understanding what she's experienced and what she's gone through really inspired me to share my story and do the same. And really just try to inspire other people to overcome some of those barriers and trauma as well.
3: Yeah. And then after we met, well, we dated for what four years and then we got engaged actually in Ecuador when I was studying abroad. And throughout this time, we really were just kind of reflecting and analyzing our environment and where we kind of where we grew up and where we are now. And then also our foster families and and things like that. And seeing what was our normal as a child? And how do we want to be now as adults? And how do we kind of break out of that and break those cycles and be intentional on that? And so our book was really more or less a reflection on how we were able to do that and our process and our journey of going through that. So just to start with, I mean, you you mentioned this in
0: passing, but the challenges for foster youth trying to get into college and even completing high school are extraordinarily high. There is not a great record of, kids who leave the foster system and have educational success. So can you talk a little bit about maybe the program that you were in and how, you know, your personal stories actually led you to be able to go to college, even after the difficult circumstances you grew up with?
2: So for myself, I entered the foster care system at nine years old. I think it was largely due to mental health issues in my family going unresolved and relying on things that are not sustainable for people to be prosperous and healthy dealing with mental health issues in a way of pursuing substance abuse and other things that just not, aren't healthy for families and communities in general. So I entered the foster care system at nine years old. And as we all know, I had the, the, somewhat of the typical journey through foster care, traveling home to home. I lived with family for a bit before being kicked out of that home and going from home to home until I was able to be in the group home where I was able to see positive examples of people who were engineers, pastors, and lawyers, and, and so many successful people in career paths that they spoke life into me saying that we're, we know you'll be successful, and we, you just have to be there. You have to work your hardest and do your best and try to put your best foot forward. And they spoke life into me being that they were successful people. And that really inspired me to want to do more, because I always wanted to go to college. But I remember being a sophomore in high school, and I had about like a 2.1 or 2.2 And I'm like, this is not real. It just won't happen. But them speaking life into me and encouraging me to do so really contributed to my success. But at the time, I was completely unaware of the statistics that were said before foster youth. I think the number is around fifty percent of foster youth graduate from high school, but only three percent of foster youth graduate from college. Now going into college, I knew that statistic: only three percent graduate from college, and based on your specific race, it could be even lower. So I was aware of that statistic going into college and I wanted to be intentional about breaking that and being the first of my family to go to college and first of my family to graduate from college and offset that statistic that was really set before me.
3: Yeah. And for myself, I entered foster care at 13 when my biological father went to prison. And before that, my biological mother actually died by suicide. And so when I entered foster care, I went and lived with family. But they actually kicked me out my junior year of high school, packed my stuff, put it in the driveway. And that's when I moved in with my foster parents, who actually ended up being the greatest people on the planet. (laughs) I absolutely Mm -hmm. love them. And they they actually adopted me in 2019, right before we got married, so that I could say my dad walked me down the aisle. So it was like a movie moment. But when I went off to college, I went to the University of Michigan Flint and largely because I'm from Flint, Michigan. And so I wanted to go back where I was from. I had like this regret and all these negative feelings of being taken away from there but so many of my friends that I was going back to they had left and because my biological father was very abusive to me it taught me a lot about my identity of that love hurts and that really my value comes from my body and things like that and so i was in an, an 8 year abusive relationship during this time and i felt that was another reason why i went back to flint because that's where he was and so i went to the university of michigan flint and started my school there but It being a commuter school and working two jobs and having an internship, trying to afford everything, I was really struggling. And I knew that I needed to kind of leave that environment if I wanted to do better or be better because I can't just constantly be surrounded in that environment and expect something different. So I decided that I would transfer to Western Michigan University where actually my parents had graduated from. So I kind of followed them a bit because they just moved back to Kalamazoo. So I wanted to also be near them. So once I transferred When I thought I had it all together and I thought that I was incredibly independent and could figure things out myself, I didn't realize how much support I actually needed until I joined the CETA Scholars Program. And I was given campus support coach and given so many opportunities to network and be a part of a community and really a family on campus. And I mean, even between the two of us, we've done 13 study abroad programs. And every time we come back, we're like, we just love being on campus. We love our family that we created. On campus and even at our wedding probably half the people were from western like staff and, and people from the city of scholars program because this has really helped us become who we are today and create those habits and and really that family dynamic that i think we we needed and made us feel safe and welcome
1: wow okay you two are exceptional i think everyone in the audience is bawling right now including myself How do you do this? When you name those statistics, only 3% of kids finished, foster kids finished college or any of the other data, how do you redefine normal? How do you take what has happened, the amazing story that you both have had, and try to replicate that for other young people who find themselves in a similar situation?
2: Yeah, I think it first starts with awareness. And one thing that we always try to do, we do a lot of presentations with youth, with faculty as well. From, from the university level down to like elementary school level. We do interactions and presentations. But when we interact with youth, we do a couple of things. First, we try to challenge them on a lot of things as it relates to their definitions of love, definitions of family, and even down to the principles and the core ideas of what they think of themselves and the foundation that really makes up who they are. The idea of redefining normal is A lot of times our family, community, and society influences our identity. But what happens when that influence is not always healthy and not always positive? So when we interact with you, we try to challenge them to the core principles that make them who they are and who they want to be. So we set them to that standard of, okay, am I a kind person? Am I patient? Am I disciplined? Am I focused? Am I hardworking? Even if you're not those things, write those things down, put it somewhere where you can see it. And try to challenge yourself to do that every single day. A lot of people always say to us, what was the light bulb that just went off in your head that one day we just said, hey, we want to do better in our lives. But there's no light bulb. We had to take it every single day and be intentional about And for myself, I had to be aware that there's generational drug addiction on my mom's side There's generational domestic violence on my dad's side. So I have to be aware and intentional about every single thing that I think when my emotions. And I can't just react emotionally. I have to process and go through that thought pattern of, okay, how do I deal with this in a healthy, positive way that's conducive for myself and my partner and those around me? Be intentional about that on a daily basis. And then you slowly but surely, you make that progress to where I'm not thinking years and months down the line, but I'm thinking of how can I be better than I was yesterday? I think it's so much pressure on you to try to just make this 180 turnaround overnight instead of making a slow progress of, okay, I'm gonna be better, 1% better every single day. I think that should really be the goal for, for foster youth and just families and people in general.
3: And the, I mean, that's largely the goal of our book is in the beginning of our book, it kind of lays the foundation of this is like the majority of what we've gone through. And because of the length of the book, we couldn't fit everything. So more or less given the highlights of it. So this is really, you know, these are things that we've gone through, but about halfway through, we start to turn the, and it's literally called turning point, breaking cycles, redefining normal. And it's really our process of becoming aware of our environment and the changes and and how we thought as a youth and how we're trying to think as an adult, but also in our book, how we are very intentional, even in the layout of it, of every single chapter is my perspective and then Justin's perspective. And we did that on purpose because we want people to know that we had to go through individual journeys of healing and self-discovery before we could come together. Because I know for myself and for so many other young people, which is also a huge reason why we wrote this book, is that we seek out those very unhealthy relationships of people that are gonna heal us, fill our voids, do these things that only we can do for ourselves or God can do for us. And so that's what really we had to go through individually before we could come together, even though when we did start our relationship, there was some unhealthy habits in there that we were very clear in the book of, bringing things from past relationships or from what we learned from our parents and how we had to literally sit down and say, what is in our family that we don't want to carry forward with us? And even our first big argument, I'm used to screaming, yelling, hitting, saying the meanest thing you could possibly say to each other. The more below the belt, you can say, you know, you win. It was always about who's winning. And our first argument, I tried that a little bit with him, <laughs> you know, always pushing. Buttons. <laughs> and I think, I think foster youth in general do that as well. You know, you want to push boundaries, especially with your foster parents, with people around you, seeing, are you still going to love me? Are you still going to be there? And I did that with Justin in our first argument. I don't think, I I didn't call him any names or anything, but I yelled at him and he walked out. And it freaked me out because I was not used to that. I'm used to engagement. (laughs) I'm used to that screaming, yelling back. And about 30 minutes later, he came back and said, you know, you will not talk to me that way because I respect you. And I don't want that in my life. I grew up with that, that is not something that I want to move forward. And if you can't handle that, then we shouldn't be together. And so that set the tone for our relationship, but it also set an expectation, which will help the expectations I wasn't used to. And so I think that really set the tone a lot for our relationship and, and the, our journey of how can we be better and do better than what we've seen and what we've known our whole lives.
0: Alexis, you mentioned earlier the supports that you received on campus through the scholars program and just the other adults around you. And I was wondering if you could sort of describe a little bit more about both the formal and informal ways that folks have helped these conversations you are having in your relationship are so mature. And I think, you know, there are definitely middle-aged people who are not having those conversations. So what were the adults in your life doing to kind of bring you along to this point of self-discovery? How did they support you both in terms of relationship formation, but also in terms of your education and setting you up for success? What were they telling you along the way? And and what are the structures that you think going forward, we need to put in place for kids who are in your situation and, and want to move forward with a successful adult life?
3: I mean, so much of that for the both of us has come down to the community of people that has surrounded us. And for so many young people, they don't have individuals that they can go to, to ask questions, ask advice, those that challenge them and hold them accountable. And for me, by far, the people that have set that tone for me are my foster parents who are now my adoptive parent. And when I first moved in with them, they didn't do anything special. They didn't do anything different. They were just themselves. And I think a lot of foster youth learn by observation of our kind of, you know, learning what's safe, who you can trust, things like that based on who's hurt us. And when I first moved in with them, I just observed them. And they, honestly, they thought I didn't like them at first because I stayed in my room for the first week. But honestly, I was just basking in the, in the silence. There wasn't screaming and yelling. It was just awesome. People were communicating. And so just, just really observing and learning from them. And they're very strong Christians, but they didn't try to shove that at me and, and force me to do anything, even though my biological family said that they were Christians. And I told myself, well, if that's what Christianity looks like, that I don't want to be a Christian. And so moving in with my, with my foster parents and they invited me to church, but I didn't want to go. But after observing them for months and every single thing that they said, they followed through on, there was that consistency. There was just so much unconditional love that they provided me. And also there was a huge trust component when I first moved in. I know with my biological family, it didn't matter. I mean, I got all A's. I was in national honor society. I didn't do drugs, drink, go to parties. I didn't do anything. But it was no matter what I did, I couldn't gain their trust. Everything I was doing was always wrong. But when I moved in with my foster parents, they trusted me immediately. They said, you know, we're going to give you trust until you break it. And that was completely different dynamic than what I was used to. And then also, I was always used to, say, social workers, foster parents, whoever it is, always making decisions for me. And so I didn't really get to learn to make decisions for myself. And when I first moved in with my parents, I would ask them questions, you know, what should I do? How should I do it or whatever? And they would say, well, what do you think? I'm like, well, that's not what I asked. I asked you to tell me what it is I need to do. And she said, no, I need you to think about it. I need you to reflect on it. And you're ultimately going to make your own decisions. All we can do is try to guide you and give you advice. And that to me just blew my mind <laughs> ultimately, just because I wasn't used to that at all. And so I think that was a huge 180 for me. Of uh, I have power over my decisions and and where I am or where I go in this world. And all they can do, all anybody can do is give you guidance. We can't heal anybody. We can't make anybody do anything. All you can do is love them and hope that they do the best that they can. And I think that's what she was trying to teach me from the beginning. And it really started from, you know, that first night that I moved in, she said, there's anything from the grocery store you want, put it on the fridge. And she knows, well, I don't know if she knew it at the time, but food is my love language. (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and that really spoke to me and and helped me you know made me feel so loved and so welcome in her home and helped me give that autonomy back to me that I feel like you know I didn't necessarily have and so I think just generally for them and and for foster youth in general just giving a home that has consistency and stability especially as they're transitioning out of foster care is so incredibly important because 40 to 50 percent of foster youth are homeless within 18 months of aging out of foster care, yeah, yeah. and so my parents were—they were there for me. They allowed me, you know, so much room to grow, and that they loved me unconditionally. And I knew that I could always call them when I needed when I needed them. And so I think those transitioning services for youth are honestly one of the most important things because if you don't have that supportive network, if you don't have people you can call and rely on, and I know another example for myself was when I was leaving that abusive relationship, I was almost evicted from my apartment. And my dad said, why don't you come home? I was like, I never thought of that. I didn't even know that was an option. And my dad was like, well, absolutely you can come home. And I'm like, well, I didn't know. (laughs) So he came over and helped me pack up all my stuff. So it gave me a safe outlet. So it's not just for people that are leaving abusive relationships or it doesn't even have to be as serious as that. It could just be somewhere that you could call home and you have somewhere you can go for holidays. Cause so many foster youth are even homeless over holidays or breaks in school or things like that. But I always knew that I had somewhere to go. And they set that foundation for
1: me. Yeah. So, wow. I want to ask you about policy, because it sounds like so much of the support you received was from your adoptive family, from the religious community, from the folks around you. For us who are in the policy world, what are the kinds of policies that you think should be deployed so that we can at least create the conditions, either to minimize how many kids are going into foster care in the first place, or if you're in, how to make that transition. So again, there can be more stories like what you are telling us right now.
3: I mean, I always believe in being proactive. So I've been working with several organizations and things that are working to be more proactive in the sense that how can we serve families before the youth are taken from their home? Because sometimes it could be well, the number one reason why youth are put into care is because of neglect. And neglect is oftentimes a result of poverty. And so youth are being taken away from their parents simply because they're in poverty, which isn't a reason why they should be taken away. And so it's how can we support these families in a way that they can keep their children, even if it's at no fault of their own. Say if they're a single mother going to work and their child's left at home all day, and what do they do if they can't afford childcare? So there's things like that. But then also say... I know for us, like if we don't know better, how do we be better? And so there's so many thoughts and practices that are passed down generationally simply because that's all you know. But say, what if there are community programs or social workers or whatever it may be that can work with these families to try to work with them and teach them healthier ways to parent, healthier ways to support and love their children. And I know for me, I hear so many people say loving on your kids is going to make them weak. It's going to make them punks, basically. It's these ideas that are really passed down generationally that cause so much harm to these youth. And they spend their entire lives really trying to heal from their childhood. And it just kind of is compounded by adding the foster care factor of it because there's so many negative stereotypes around that. And for youth aging out of care, I know several incredible people who are working very diligently on how can we support youth as they age out of care. And so much of that has come down to mentorship programs that are available, but then also transitional housing for youth that are aging out of care. Because so many youth, actually, they're bankrupt. They don't have any credit. They maybe move into their first apartment and don't understand how to budget, how to pay for rent. And so they get evicted. And once you get evicted, where are you going to go? you can't get another apartment unless probably you go to section eight or something like that. So what are your next steps really? And so it's, Unfortunately, there's so many layers to it that does make it incredibly difficult, but it's something that is solvable by our society. And I see it just really as a failure on society for so many youth to be aging out and be homeless or also looking at the foster care to prison pipeline and so many factors
2: like that. 70% of people who are in prison have experienced the foster care system. I think that's a pretty shocking statistic. And one thing, one area I will focus on as it relates to policy is, like we said, the aspect before children move into foster care. I think the mental health aspect is very important, I would say. A lot of families like Alexis alluded to don't really know how to understand how to communicate in a healthy way or understand the I think the foundational piece of family sometimes is very unhealthy from our experience and what we've seen. And once those unhealthy habits and patterns of just getting by can be normalized, I think that develops over time and eventually children in the foster care system. I think if families can have more opportunities to understand how to deal with mental health and get to a point where we can achieve more autonomy for families, where they don't feel pulled down by poverty or limited options, if we can't have more opportunities to have maybe parents and families have something in the community where there's a business or initiative that they're a part of that truly contribute to their success and can be passed down to children. I think if we can have businesses and also work on good character and things that family has identified as something that can be good that that's passed down to children, I think just the awareness piece of something being passed down is something that's very important. So making families aware and intentional about things that will be passed down, because I don't think individuals really are aware that their habits and things that they do or the financial piece of debt or or bad financial practices can be passed down. But once families and individuals can understand that what you do, what you say, how you act, how you communicate is something that can be passed down generationally, then I think families and individuals will be more aware of creating something for their children and their children's children that would be healthy and something sustainable and be intentional about developing that that foundational piece of success and just things that will be conducive for their future and their children's future.
0: It sounds like just listening to your stories, one, one thing that jumps out at me is that both of you had, it sounds like, really stable and important kind of placements right before you left foster care. So, Justin, you mentioned the group home you were in and Alexis, this, the foster parents who eventually adopted you. And I think there are a lot of people who are very concerned that It's hard to find placements for older kids, but we cannot give up on teenagers when it comes to the foster care system because that last place for where teenagers are for the last couple of years before they age out, before they either go to college or get a job or whatever it is, can be so important in shaping their future life prospects. I mean, you know, there are campaigns about adopting older kids or fostering older kids I think a lot of times group homes can get a very bad rap just because there are some bad apples out there, but they can also provide this kind of stability and mentorship that you describe. So I was, just, I was just struck that you guys are really just a great example, both of you and both of your individual stories, of how important it is to think about older youth in foster care and you know that it's not just two-year-olds who can be helped through this system, that older kids can be too. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: we 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 believe that some families try to maybe see foster care as a way as a second option to not having biological children. But we I mean we always say we call on the church really to try to be more involved in the process. And I think this is something that Alexa says all the time that if every church in the US adopted one child out of the foster care system, then that probably wouldn't be a system. So A lot of times we think of, oh, I have to be the parent, but you don't have to just be the parent. You can be the mentor. You can be the tutor, the coach. You can play some active role in the foster care system that doesn't specifically say, oh, you have to foster and adopt. You play some role. And I think everybody plays some role in serving foster care youth. And when it comes to teenagers, I feel that that's even more important. Being a coach, being a mentor, being an advocate, providing those skills. We all have a skill. Whether you're an engineer, you're a writer, whatever skill you have, just be intentional about passing on those skills and giving those options to foster youth who may feel like I have to follow in the footsteps of an unhealthy family member or an unhealthy really expectation that was set before me. Pass on those skills so maybe they can understand that maybe I could be an engineer, I could be this or I could be that. I think that's very important.
3: We always tell people really that foster care saved us because it got us out of that environment. It put us into a new environment where we could learn and grow. And my foster parents were actually intentional that they wanted teenage girls. They felt very called that they should help teenage girls. And if they didn't do that, I know for a fact I wouldn't be where I am today. I am pretty sure I wouldn't be a college graduate. I wouldn't be a serial entrepreneur, author, all these things that I am today that they've given me the love and support in order to do because they really more or less saved me in that pivotal turning point where I was at in my life of, am I going to continue going down that path or can I do do or be something different? And they showed me that.
1: I know we're coming to a close, but I want to just talk about the one element of your model, ROSE, the rising over societal expectations and this focus on entrepreneurship. You just talk about that element.
2: Yeah. So with ROSE, the ROSE Empowerment Group, which is basically company slash initiative under the redefining normal company and it's founded on three different components starting with myself and my myself component discusses character development individual growth setting goals and how one can be disciplined and efficient and just everything that relates to impacting the individual person because before we help anybody else we got to make sure we can help ourselves what's the saying you, you can't, can't
3: pour from an empty cup
2: You can't pour from an empty cup. So you got to focus on individual and how we can help ourselves and be the best version of of ourselves that we can be. So secondly, it starts with my community. The my community aspect focuses on family and family communication, family relationships, group economics, and how we can build a solid foundational idea of community and neighborhoods. So that's the second component. And the third is my impact. And with my impact, we want to establish programs, initiatives, and even local businesses that really Bring up the quality of communities and, and neighborhoods that we're in, and really create those impacts, and those staples within the community. So, with the Rose Model and the Rose Empowerment Group, right now we have our podcast, the Rose from Concrete Podcast, where we discuss communities, topics, and ideas of individual, of community, of impact. And it starts with just having the conversation and sparking the idea. And we have so many different ideas and things that are coming from this. Well, there'll be potential more books. And we have our conference come up either later this year or next year. We're trying to figure out the details of it. But based on those three components, we have our conference coming up, the Rose Model Conference. And we want to just continue the conversation of rising over societal expectations for communities who have gone through just a lot and are feel marginalized.
3: All right. Well, we're
0: looking forward to all of those things. Yeah. It's so rare. We we need to have more optimistic stories <laughs> on this podcast, Ian. This this made me think about that. We can say, are you kidding me in a great way?
1: Exactly. <laughs> and this is more than just optimistic. It's practical. This is yeah. real. You're making it yeah. happen. So Alexis and Justin, you two are you're an inspiration. Thank you.
0: Yes. And you can get their book, Redefining Normal. They also have a website. It's re-definingnormal.com. You can check out their story there. Thanks again. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get our episodes on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Naomi Schaefer Riley.
1: And I'm Ian Rowe.
0: Thanks so much.
1: Thank Thank you. you.